You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. The Journey of Two Mountains. There was once two houses at the base of two mountains, only separated by a small stream. Each morning, the two owners of the two houses would sit at their porches facing the river and wave at one another. And during the evening times, they would visit on a small bridge that overlooked the stream. And while the houses were close in space, they were also separated by some distance. Both houses rested in the shadow of different mountains that were also right next to each other. The house in the shadow of the mountain of the west was a massive house. It was a great house with many rooms built of stone from that mountain. The owner had many barns and many livestock, and the world would find the house on the west beautiful. The house in the shadow of the mountain of the east was quaint. Wooden timbers held in the heat during the winter months, and the only outdoor building was the outhouse. The best feature of that house was the view of the mountain. The mountain themselves were also similar as they were different. Both stood at about the same height. Both were rocky at the bottom with fluctuations of trees making their way up the mountain. Both were divided by the same stream that separated the houses, but that is where their similarities ended. The mountain to the west was alive with lights blazing fire, what could only be described as gloom, and a tempest constantly surrounded its base. And if you got close enough, the sound of trumpets and a voice as loud as thunder echoed through its roots. That mountain seemed alive. And the myths of the mountain had said that only one person had ever scaled it and lived the mountain to the east. It looked like a normal mountain. The trees grew taller every year, and so slowly did it change that even those who had lived for 80 years wouldn't realize it. The mountain had grown greener and greener, and also brighter and brighter. At night, the mountain of the west roared, and at night, the mountain of the east cast a gentle light by the glow of the moon. If given a choice, what house would you want to live in? The house at the west, at the base of the mountain of thunder, or the cabin of the east, at the base of the mountain of light. We're going to visit both mountains today, and we're going to visit both houses. The mountain of the west described in today's passage is Mount Sinai, the mountain of stone in which the Ten Commandments were carved from its rock, the same mountain that the, where the people of Israel camped in wonder as they waited the return of Moses, the same mountain 
that they believed had swallowed up their leader due to the power that was displayed. And the mountain to the east is Mount Zion, and on it lies the heavenly Jerusalem. Christians get closer to that mountain every day, and they see it more clearly as the day draws near. Both mountains contain the power of Yahweh God. Both mountains display the holiness of God. One mountain, the mountain of justice, and the other, the mountain of grace. The question that is posed to you today, church, is which journey are you taking? To which mountain do you travel? And whose shadow do you wait the great day of the Lord? Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, if you're not there already, and stand for the reading of the Word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. We begin our journey at the base of the mountain of fire in verses 18 through 21. And while when you read that description, while you read the description as Exodus 19, we might look at that mountain with great fear, I I want you to understand that that mountain was the source of great pride for the Hebrews. They are a people of the law. That was how they would describe themselves to the cultures around them. And the law was given to them at Mount Sinai. They were a people of the one true God who in Egypt put all of their gods to shame by destroying everything that they stood for 
in the plagues of the Exodus, Yahweh God overcame Pharaoh's army. Yahweh God parted the Red Sea. Yahweh God fed them manna from heaven. Yahweh God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And now both cloud and fire encircled the mountain of Mount Sinai as a sign of the power of Yahweh God, as a sign that he is holy and he calls a holy people to himself. For on that mountain, the law came. But the law has no power to save. It showed Israel that they needed a redeemer to save them from their sin. The law pointed to the destruction of those who would break the law. Here's 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in the letters on stone, he's referring to the Ten Commandments here, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. He's comparing the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 there. John Owen writes this as he discusses this mountain and this passage as well. This is what he says. God was here seen in all the outward demonstrations of infinite holiness, justice, severity, and terrible majesty on the one hand, and on the other, men in their lowest condition of sin, misery, guilt, and death. If there was nothing to come between God and man, all this glorious preparation was nothing but a spectacle set up for pronouncing of judgment and the sentence of eternal condemnation against sinners. You see, this is the argument in verses 18 through 21 of Hebrews. The argument is stating that those Hebrews that are considering going back to Judaism, that their mountain offers no salvation. That's what the author is saying in Hebrews. You see, Mount Sinai only reminds them of their lack of righteousness and their need to be made perfect by a mediator. Well, how does this section speak to us today, Pastor? I know many of your spiritual journeys. I have yet to meet one of you that is considering to become a Jew. So how does this speak to me here? I once had a student ask me if it would be easier if God had just given us a list of do's and don'ts instead of a book about a man named Jesus that had stories, some do's and don'ts, but a lot of analogies and prophecies. What would have been easier in that moment? And I think that the student was very right at some level. I think most of us, if left to a decision, would rather just receive a to-do list from God than a book about a person named Jesus. Why? Because, it's, because a list seems easier to keep than a person to get to know. Because a list seems easier to keep than a person to get to know. I think most of us would rather have a God of lists. That's why we like Santa Claus. You're either naughty or nice. Just leave him cookies and don't think twice. However, 
If we remember from the text a few weeks ago, we talked about one of the big picture statements of the Bible that's everywhere. God desires to be with us. And the way someone is with us is if you know them. Jesus already knows you better than you know yourself. And his book is clearly not an Excel spreadsheet. It's a story because he desires for you to know him. And scripture is the main vehicle in which this is done. At Mount Sinai, a list was given to give us a glimpse of the character of God. We've talked about that in Ecclesiastes. In contrast, at Mount Zion, the whole story was unfolded and a relationship with God was made possible. Here's another reason I think we would just prefer a God of lists. Because we want a God so desperately that can just fit into a box that we can control him. We want so much to make an idol that we can call God that challenges us only as far as we're comfortable with. But Jesus, if you've known him, regularly does not fit into a box. Jesus is greater than our box. There are, that's why there are things in Scripture that stretch us, confound us, and fluster us. You see, he's a God of unparalleled beauty and awe and holiness, and that doesn't always fit into the picture of God we want or desire. So who is the God that we follow? Who is this Jesus, and where does he dwell? Well, the next few verses give us exactly that. Hebrews 12, 23 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, while we did visit the mountain of fire, God invites us to the mountain of light. Let's walk through to the descriptors that he gives us when discussing Mount Zion. First, I want you to note the term Zion. Zion typically refers to the new Jerusalem in heaven. The majority of the time that you see it within the text of scripture, it's talking about the new Jerusalem to come. So know that. Every time you stumble about that, stumble about that word, you should be thinking forward to the new Jerusalem, the heaven, because Zion is always before us. Second, we've talked about the language of the living God prior. This is again pointing us to the reality of the res resurrection. We have a God who lives, we, a God who is with us, Emmanuel, a God who is currently at work on our behalf and for the glory of God the Father. Third, let's speak of the heavenly Jerusalem. Why is the emphasis here on heavenly? Well, it's in contrast to the earthly one. Well, what's the difference between the two? Well, one is being built and one is decaying. 
You and I can visit the earthly Jerusalem this week if we wanted to. We could actually get on a plane this afternoon and make our way to the old Jerusalem. We could walk the stone streets. We could order falafel or shawarma. I never I butcher the word shawarma. shawarma. Who's ever had shawarma? I butcher that word every time. I, my southern accent just bleeds through and I make it shawarma or something like that. It's bad. We could visit the sites of the old Jerusalem. We could actually meet people, but it is distinctly different from the heavenly Jerusalem. While the wailing wall continues to slowly crumble year by year, the walls of pearls and many beautiful stones of the new Jerusalem are being built and fashioned. Even now, we will not spend eternity in the earthly Jerusalem. We will spend eternity in the new Jerusalem. Well, what's there? This is where it gets fun. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's not saying here that there's like an infinite amount of angels. I know every philosophy major in the room is like, well, don't do that. Um, It is saying that we just can't count them. But what I want you to focus on is in the mind is what's important here is the clothing. They're in festal gatherings. How many of you have used that term in the past month, right? It's party clothes. They're literally wearing outfits designed for a party. The New Jerusalem is a party town. There is great celebration that takes place. We don't spend eternity on a cloud with a harp, ladies and gentlemen. It's a party, and at midnight you don't lose your slippers or your outfit. Next group that is there is the assembly of the firstborn. This is the saints who are there who are glorified, the Christians who have gone before us. And one day, you and I will join that number. There is another descriptor of a few words later that needs to also be included here. And that is, he also refers to us, the assembly of the firstborn, as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Dr. Michael Kruger says this in his commentary, this line is not accidental. Mount Sinai may remind you of how unholy you are, but Mount Zion is where you are found. You find that you have been made perfect. You have been made perfect because Christ has redeemed you and changed you. You have gained righteousness and holiness by His grace. Therefore, you can come even to God, the judge of all, in confidence. And of course, the last person that's described in heaven, not because he's the least important, is God Himself, the Trinity the judge of all, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the Holy Spirit who unites us to the God of the universe. Now, is this section of Scripture saying that God is only the God of Mount Zion and not the God of Mount Sinai? To quote Paul, by no means. The cross of Christ is on both mountains. The person of Jesus is on both mountains. You see, Christ fulfilled the law at Mount Sinai, living a perfect life on our behalf, and by his sacrifice at Calvary, now offers us 
Mount Zion, a new home where God would dwell. The living waters of Jesus unite both mountains. But our home, if you are in Christ, is not the mountain of judgment, but the mountain of grace. However, I want us to return to the homes in the shadows of the mountain for a little bit more of our passage today. For the rest of our passage leaves us with a warning of what will take place with whatever homes we occupy. Hebrews 12, 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What will take place is the last shaking. See to it that you do not refuse who is speaking. The very beginning of verse 25, we have to ask, well, who is speaking? This is a reminder of the very beginning of the book, Hebrews 1-2. But in those last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Time and time, again throughout the book of Hebrews, the Lord has reminded us to repent of our sin and turn to the gospel. We are called to turn away from sin, to, br- to not break the law of Mount Sinai, and to cling to the work of the Lord of Mount Zion, to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus. But we know many will not follow God. Remember the people at the roots of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19? They are the people who refused to listen to the Lord's message here on earth. That's who he's talking about in Hebrews um, 12.25. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The people at the beginning of that are the people of Mount Sinai. Hear this. Hear the parallels. The Lord's messenger, Moses, told the people of God to wait for him, to trust Yahweh while he was away. But the moment he went up the mountain and did not return immediately, what did they do? Get all the gold. We're going to make an idol. They made a new God. A God that they could fit into a box. A God of lists. A God who is not a person. A God who they could control And what happened? They did not escape judgment. Because of this and their constant lack of faith along the journey, only two of them stepped foot in the promised land. The rest would die in the desert. Likewise, we have heard the Lord's messenger, the Lord Jesus. He has told us to wait for his return. But many of us cast small gods in our own image, ones we can control, ones that don't ask too much of us, and ones that definitely make us feel morally superior to all our neighbors. That's the type of God I like. But our God has warned us from heaven by proclamation of a gospel to turn from our false idols and follow Jesus. For Jesus is better 
He's better than the false idols that we make to please our own hearts. He is the king of Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, and he offers you the heavenly city, a forever home. But we spend our time and energy, if you're like me, thinking on the things of the world that probably will be destroyed. Look, the two houses at the bottom of the mountain, the really nice stone one and the shack, they, all, they have the same fate. That's the commentary on it. The commentary wasn't have a, a shack of a house or a nice house. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that both will be destroyed. You can have nice things on earth. Those things just can't become your gods. They can't redeem you. They'll be shaken. Hebrews 12, 27. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Jesus offers more than the palaces or cabins that we create on earth. But much of our time is spent building our own little kingdoms. How often do you long for the home that you will receive in heaven? I'm going to say that again. How often do you long for the home that you will receive in heaven? Or are we too concerned about the trivial things of this earth and our current homes instead? Look, I joke with Corey all the time. It's a running joke at my house to the point where she's starting to get a little frustrated over it, okay? I want a hot tub. Why? Which is a stupid question. Because life is better with a hot tub. Winter. Drastically better with a hot tub. Yes? I have this vision. I'll, t- I'll come off my, uh, my little, uh, what do you call it, my little deck in my backyard, and I'll turn the corner, and I can see the place where I want to put that hot tub. I can envision it. I can envision those mornings where I drink my coffee in my hot tub. I can envision those evening afternoons where I'm watching the kids play in the backyard from my hot tub. I think a lot about my hot tub. If I have not painted the picture sufficiently for you, I would like to invite you over to my home and I will show you exactly where I would like to put my hot tub. But when was the last time I considered my home to come? And the hot tub that will probably not be there. (laughs) But you see, the home Jesus offers is greater. John 14, 1 and 2, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If, you were, if it were not so, that I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus' house is greater. Church, we can be grateful for the earthly blessings that the Lord has given us, but they must not overshadow the heavenly blessings that are offered. And we may, and may we put those in the right order. 
May we not put our hope in a kingdom that will be shaken, but may we put our hope in a kingdom that will hold fast. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What are our responses to the two mountains? What are our responses to the two mountains? Let me give you our first one. Our hearts should be grateful. Our hearts should be grateful. Look, some of you might have problems with your current home. Leaky roof, poor foundation, maybe some mold. Maybe a roommate you're a little frustrated with, right? Like, we all have issues in our home. Know this. That home will be destroyed. And I know some of you are praying, like, God, when that happens, will you give me a holy sledgehammer to participate in its destruction? I can't promise you that. You'll have to look at the book of Second Opinions to see if that's true. But no matter the state of the home you live in now, We can look forward with great anticipation to the home to come, for that home will be better. And for those of you with great homes, for homes that really are where the heart is, know that that home will be destroyed too. And a new home will be offered in its place. And it will be better. Look, I'm hoping my heavenly home is a houseboat. Like, Lord already knows this. If it isn't, I'm sure it will be better. Either way, game night's on Tuesday. You're all invited. Drop in whenever. And in the meantime, I hope I build my home with a view of the mountain of light. And then I soak in that view every morning and evening preferably from a hot tub. (laughs) For it is the mountain that gives me the right perspective and the right joy. How do I know it'll give me joy? (laughs) It's the other response that Hebrews talks about, right? Offer worship with reverence and awe. You see, reverence comes with a better understanding of the holiness of God in relationship to a better understanding of our own sin. We deserve to tremble at the base of Mount Sinai. That should be our outcome. For we are a people who have cast idols in images that have profaned the Lord's messenger. But instead, if you're following Christ, we're offered Mount Zion in the city of light. Look, From both houses in the analogy, you can see both mountains. It is not as if one disappears. They both serve a purpose. And for the Christian, it should be the purpose of worship. I need to make this statement. Um, I think I've discussed it before, but just in case you, you missed that week. When worship is described in Scripture, it's not just song, right? When we come to worship on Sunday morning, the gathering of the saints, the edification of one another, 
that's worship. The praise of our Lord, that's worship. The prayers we offer, that's worship. The reading of Scripture, that's worship. The proclamation of the Word of God, that is worship. That's all worship that takes place here. But Scripture makes clear that worship happens throughout the course of your week. The way that you approach your job is worship. The way you parent is worship. The way you take your dog for a walk is worship. Romans 12, 1, right? We present our bodies as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual act of worship. So when I'm speaking of worship here, we worship with reverence and awe. It's just not in the moments that we sing a melody or a harmony or we attempt one of the two because we weren't trained musicians. For we have received a gift that we do not deserve and a journey to run that we cannot afford to miss. Let's consider the journey of two mountains again. You see, all mankind is on the journey of two mountains. For a great shaking is to come. The Bible reminds us in Romans 14, 11, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Philippians 2, 10 says the same thing. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and where else? Under the earth. All people will one day recognize the king for who he is. The question becomes... When you bow the knee, will it be out of fear or will it be out of praise? For those who have denied the gospel, their sin will be laid bare and Mount Sinai will be before them and they will tremble. For they will know that Yahweh God is a God of justice and he will execute that justice perfectly. And for those who have surrendered to Jesus and offer a knee of praise, they'll be raised to new life in heaven, a new Jerusalem with a God who desires to be with them and sin that no longer separates us for we'll be clothed in righteousness. The angels around us will be ready for a party and we'll be home Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he 
will be my son. May we look forward to that day and that mountain church. Bow your heads with me.